From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. There's no prescribed path to becoming a working director. Some do it from the very beginning. They make short films that get attention, and a production company takes a chance on a first-time director. For me, it was writing that opened the door. Disney was interested in hiring me as a writer when I was working on Amazing Stories and offered me one of their TV movies as my first time out directing. It wasn't great, but then Steven Spielberg offered me an opportunity to tackle one of my own stories for the show, and that turned out well and led to other offers to direct. Tom Holland's route was pretty unique. He was an actor first, then a writer, and that ultimately led to him making his debut as a director with Fright Night. Our paths have crossed surprisingly often, even though we didn't really meet until a few years after our first near intersection. I was working in publicity at Universal when he wrote Psycho 2. I later directed Psycho 4. I was doing publicity on The Beast Within, which he wrote. We finally met when I was story editor on Amazing Stories, and he directed an episode. Then I cast him in a cameo in The Stand. Then we both directed episodes of Tales from the Crypt. We've both done multiple Stephen King adaptations. And ultimately, he directed an episode of my Masters of Horror series. Tom's list of genre credits is remarkable, and to have created at least two classics of the horror world is an incredible feat. Tom's story is one of a kind, and I'm eager to dig into it. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. We met with amazing stories. I did the Jonathan Cryer. That's right. And I remember the day I think I met you, I met uh, Matheson. Yeah, R.C. and Father. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about how we met on Amazing Stories. Tell me about your experience working with Spielberg and, and doing this television show. Well, what I remember about Steven is he came by when I was shooting and told me how much he loved Fright Night, which I guess is why he remade it. <laughs> it's too bad he didn't call me before he remade it. I didn't realize that uh, they had remade it, that it was his company. Yeah. Ah, okay. Um, I was doing specialized publicity when Psycho 2 came out. And so I got a copy of the script, and the last three pages were not in it. They weren't allowed right. to be shown to anybody. Right. Tell me about how that came about. Because that's how Hitchcock did the original. 
So he, he distributed the script to all the cast and crew without the last couple of pages. Without the last couple of pages, yeah. And, and so, then, then because Richard Franklin, who directed Psycho 2, was a mad Hitchcock fan and had, I think at the very beginning, he had Hitchcock down to USC. And I think that was one of the first times and I, that, that the way Richard described it is Hitchcock was shocked that anybody wanted to talk to him in front of a college, you know, film class. And uh, Richard was like the MC, like you are now, <laughs> with, with Alfred Hitchcock. There, I've seen photos of it. And then Hitchcock invited him on the set of Frenzy. Wow. And I, I don't, Richard Franklin's now gone, but, you know, to, if he wasn't the greatest Hitchcock scholar, then Robin Wood, maybe. Hmm. But I mean, Richard knew everything about Hitchcock and about John Ford. And I think that's where I got it, too. He said that they were the two greatest directors in film. Well, so your your start came in a very circuitous way. I mean, you were doing episodic television as an actor in the late 1950s. I did. I did. Not the late 1950s. I was under contract to Warner Brothers when I was 18. And that 1963 was the year that JFK was assassinated. Right. I remember well. And yeah, I was sitting in a motel in, in Burbank under contract to, 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 to Warner's. And they still had the set standing for uh, My Fair Lady. They still had the outdoor castle set built for uh, Camelot. Uh, and uh, Sinatra and the gang were shooting uh, somebody in the Seven Little Hoods. Oh, right. Robin and the Seven Robin Hoods. Robin and the Seven yeah. Hoods, yes. And, uh, you know, and I sort of just walked around in a state of befuddled fandom. Were you a big movie fan as a kid? Huge. Yeah. And that acting was the first direction you wanted to take? Did you want no. to be a filmmaker? No, I couldn't get in. Mm. I couldn't get in. The uh, I could go on and on and on. There's Go my, ahead. Well, it predates you. The, the, business was, uh, the business was very, very closed. Also, when I came in, it was on a down, downturn. The, they'd had, you know, television had wiped out theater grosses. Uh... The Antitrust Act of like 1947, which made them divest of the theaters. Right. Destroyed. It used to be that the big major studios owned the theaters owned as distribution well. distribution too. And they would, that was outlawed. Right. And I think at the same time, Bobby Kennedy was going after MCA Universal for, for you know, for, for, for ownership, not only of the agencies, but also of the studios. And it was an extremely unsettled time. Anyway, what happened was the movie, the grosses of the movie started to decline and they went into television. And for about seven or eight years there, the, the, the studios did very well, specifically Warner's and I think Universal, but especially Warner's, which is where I was as a contract player. So you were a contract actor for Warner's. I you was could seven only years. work for Warner's. Seven years. Wow. I think I started at 250 a week and I thought I was filthy rich. <laughs> it <laughs> must have felt like I it. Kept, it certainly did when you were 18. I had to go down to court to be able to sign the contracts because I was underage. Wow. And, uh, it was it was just when it was dying. I did the I, I was I guest starred in the last season of Sun seventy seven Sunset Strip. I you were guessed, in combat. I was well. That was later. Yeah. The then, but while I was under Warner's, I also did Temple Houston, 
And I mean, I worked with, I mean, I can't, you know, I can't remember everybody that I worked with. Well, you started at the Actors Studio, Lee Strasberg's, which is the most revered of all acting schools. I started at Northwestern University. Ah, okay. I got into, uh, I did a, a, an, a, this is to get into college. I did an audition scene for them for Carnegie Tech. And I got into both and I went to Northwestern because they had, uh, they at least offered some academics. And, you know, and my mother was screaming in the back of my ear, you know, get an education so you can get a job. <laughs> the, uh, I went there and then I, I had already started work. I started in the summer of my 16th birthday at, uh, at Bucks County Playhouse in Pennsylvania, hmm. which was a huge summer stock, you know, pre-Broadway tryout theater. And that's where I learned everybody was going to acting classes in New York. So the next summer I clerked in a uh, men's and women's store and I would ride in once a week, I think on Saturdays, to go to the H.B. Herbert Berghoff Studio, Hagen Berghoff Studios on Bank Street, 21 Bank Street, I still remember. Wow. And then I went away to college, but I wanted to direct even then. Before but, you were acting. Yeah, before I was acting, but there was just, there was no way. When I went to Northwestern, there was no film school. They had, their film school was in one room. And they had uh, a 16 mil camera and they had some cold splicers. Mm -hmm. And in that first year, I did my first film. I shot 16, I don't know, I shot, I don't know, like two hours. Milton Casalis helped me cut it in New York. Uh, you know, I mean, the the... The people that I met when I went to New York before I got the seven-year contract, I was in the Walla Group for America, America for Gadget wow. Zan. Yeah. Uh, so I did that. Then I then I, I I did soaps in New York. I was a soap opera star. I did that for about three years. Amazing. It was amazing. That was that was a terrific experience. Now you had to learn on your feet. That was pretty much close to theater. Basically, you you went through it pretty much live. We did do it live. Right. There was a time delay for coming out to the West Coast, but if a flat fell down, you kept on with the scene. It was live, and it was five days a week, right? Five days a week, and I think the most I ever had to memorize was like 41 pages one night. Oh, my God. Yeah, I could do it then, <laughs> you know, you, but you get, you, get, you get acclimated to that. Do you think it taught you a lot of uh, good habits? Did it teach you bad habits to just be able to do something, get it done and get it quick, or... All of Made it. you more nimble? All of it, Nick. Mm -hmm. All of it. The, uh, I learned how to, this is the ability I still have, actually. Like, I learned how to put scenes on their feet mm -hmm. and make them play and adjust the blocking to making them play. And then I learned off of that how to go to camera angles. Well, tell me about the, uh, the actor's studio experience. What, how, it's very well known for the method. Uh, was that a philosophy that you subscribed to as an actor? I don't think I knew. I think that I was just so thrilled that I got in. The uh, And I, I think like so much when you're young and even now, it's about fashion. Mm. And it was Lee Strasberg was, was teaching. The most boring man in the world. <laughs> really? God help me. Yeah. And yet one of the most revered, probably the most revered instructor of drama. Stella Adler. Stella Adler. was the best I ever studied yeah. with. Not Lee, Stella. Really? So you studied with both? Yeah. yeah. That's impressive. You have to be invited for these. Yeah, yeah. The, but I mean, it was, it was just, it was, I don't know how I did it, actually. <laughs> you know, I, I got in through, 
I had help in her, the famous actress, and her name is out of my mind, like in the Poseidon Adventure. She got very fat. Stella, oh, Shirley, uh, Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters. Yeah. yeah. Shelley Winters, I think, got me the, got me the, uh, the interview or that I had to get up and do a scene. Then I know when I was out at the actor's studio here, Jack Garfine ran it. And that was Lee at the, at the height of his career. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, of his fame because of all the actors. And, I mean, everybody was there who was anybody in 1968. So who were some of your classmates at the uh, actor's studio? Well, at that point, it was a studio. It wasn't like class. Right. You'd go there and you'd, you'd see two, three, four scenes on their feet, which people spent a week rehearsing. And then you'd finish maybe a 15 or 20 minute scene and Lee would hold forth for two hours. And that was where I started to go nuts. <laughs> where you'd get sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was Shelley was there. Bruce Stern was there. Bruce Stern's wife was there. The Flying Nun was there. Sally uh, Field, yeah. Sally was there. Uh, the guy who, then, who, who, who passed away, Father Knows Best. What's his Robert name? Robert Young. No, not Robert Young. No. Oh, the Brolin. other one. Ja uh, um, James Brolin? Marsha, Marsha. Oh. oh, okay. Now you're into yeah. TV land that is beyond my well, no, Marsha, Marsha's... Yeah, Brady Bunch. Or, uh, Brady Bunch, yeah, yeah. that was it. A show uh, I never watched, I'm afraid to say. But. And what they had was they had a writer's unit. Ah. And they also had a play writer playwright unit. So you studied both acting and playwriting at what, the What studio? happened was I started to act in the, the one-act plays. That the, these were working writers. And people like Jim Bridges... Right. Yeah, you know, wow. Jim was there. Jim had just finished uh, the sci-fi movie about the computer that took over the world. Col Colossus, the Colossus, Fulton Project. Colossus, yeah. yes. Yep. And there were, it's so hard to grab now, but they were the people that were the hottest writers in Hollywood at that moment, none of whom could write a story, God forbid. <laughs> but, you know, they, they had, they were writing, you know, movies that, that, that people were doing. This was at the moment in time when Hollywood had truly lost its way. Mm. This is just in or around the time or prior to uh, Peter Fonda and... Right, Easy Rider. Easy yeah, Rider. Dennis Hopper. This was uh, a real breaking point in the studio system because they discovered that there was a youth audience out there that they knew nothing about. The old ways weren't working anymore. Right. They were making, you know, uh, uh, Rex Harrison musicals, and what the audience wanted to see was Easy Rider, which could be made for nothing. And so they would actually take these renegade filmmakers and not pay them much, but still have something that they didn't understand but could appeal to the young audience. That sums it up pretty well. <laughs> uh, Christopher Jones was there. Mm -hmm. Because he went on to do that. He went on to do The Looking Glass War and mm -hmm. uh, Ryan's Hope. And, you know, and the first time I saw him, I must have jumped 30 feet because he looked exactly like Jimmy Dean. Wow. Yeah. The uh, it was it was it was all the legends of the 50s into the 60s. Carl Malden. Mm. Wonderful man. Lovely, lovely, lovely man. And so your move into writing, had you been writing before or was it stimulated by this experience? I was trying, mm -hmm. but I couldn't. Writing, as you well know, is hard. I mean, you know, the uh, you can take and you can bullshit. Can I? I don't know. Yeah, 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 you're fine. You can bullshit a lot of things, but, you know, you can even bullshit directing because directing you, you have a whole organization underneath you that props you up.
writing and, and I, I guess acting, I could go on and on about this, but acting yeah. too. Acting too is something that where, you know, where you can, you can see a lot of people that you think are rather mediocre who do extremely well. Some of them become movie stars. <laughs> the, uh, so there's never been a direct correlation between talent and success, at least as far as acting is concerned. It's really irrational. <laughs> and also what happens is that camera reads people in a way that your naked eye doesn't. And there are some people, Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson, the previous general, who tacked down the frame. You know, I mean, it's, 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 you have people that were absolutely brilliant. Steve McQueen cut every line he had. God forbid if he had to give three or four lines in a <laughs> row. You know, Kevin Costner was the same way in Robin Hood. That was, you know, the, the projection was weak on that. But in reaction shots, they're brilliant. In other words, there are a lot of different ways to look at film acting. So looking at somebody doing a scene on a stage did not necessarily tell me how terrific or not that they would be on film. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I met a lot of writers. And at that was the moment in time when the writers were trying to knock down the door and get into Hollywood and make films. And it occurred to me that if I wanted to direct, that writing might be the way to do it. Now, while I was doing that, I, had, I was working production and commercials. You know, I mean, I was just doing everything. The, uh, and I directed commercials. I started directing Hasbro and uh, wow. the, the, the stupid dolls, the whatever they were. <laughs> I, did a whole, I did a whole bunch of really cheap children's commercials. Wow. But anyway, so I, but, I, I, but, but all that led me to was better paying jobs in terms of directing commercials. Right, which is not where you wanted to be. No, so it, it seemed like getting there was just impossible, but the way I saw going at that time was original screenplays. Hard as that is to imagine now, but they were totally open to original screenplays because of what you saw, that what you said, the, the youth revolution, the, uh, the baby boomers, yeah. as we age out now, then we're, you know, we're, the, we're the millennials of their day. Uh, and so it was how to feed that audience. And there was huge confusion in Hollywood. Uh, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't, they didn't yet bring it down to a science of how to reduce risk, which, of course, is what's been going on the last 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. 20 years. The, uh, well, your first produced screenplay, if I'm not mistaken, was that the invitation of, uh, initiation, initiation of Sarah? Initiation of Sarah, yeah. And that was kind of controversial because Extremely. It, it was made and they said they were making a European version and got a lot of the actresses, from what I recall, to actually do nude scenes that were never going to be used in this ABC TV movie but we're going to be used in air quotes in Europe. Okay, now what I remember is it was the first wet t-shirt <laughs> movie of the week that they did. <laughs> they took that, that, that blonde lady, they took her and they threw her in a fountain at UCLA, and she came walking out with a t-shirt, and it was soaking wet, and then, of course, the nipples got harder, and you saw, <laughs> you saw all that. And that was absolutely uh, scandalous. Yeah. There was, it was the lead article in, in uh, the L.A. Times magazine, which, they, you know, the binder they used to have, which was mm -hmm. all the theater stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was the front cover, and it was quite, quite, a, quite a cause, celeb, yeah. So how did that come about? Was this the first screenplay you'd completed or just the first one that had been produced? Was that the first one you saw? Well, I started out writing TV thanks to a man called Dick Berg. Mm -hmm. But Rick Dick Berg was, was a terrific producer. 
and Dick had cast me as an actor in a Chrysler theater called Bus Rally's Back in Town, mm. which starred Michael, and he just passed away. Tarantino picked him up all the time. Was Parks, a, Michael, Michael Parks. Parks. Yeah. Starred Michael Parks, who then was the hottest thing in Hollywood. And Ann Bancroft mm -hmm. and Jack Warden. Mm -hmm. So Dick remembered me from working with him as an actor. And I, I had, of course, by that time I had sample scripts and he gave me a shot. And that turned into Initiation of Sarah, except, of course, I was rewritten. And I was rewritten, and this was a habit I had for years, I was writing ahead of what special effects could do. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I wrote was the sorority girls were fighting with each other, and there was a witch in there someplace, and the evil witch, or the good witch, however you want to look at it, was turning the mean girls into barnyard animals. <laughs> and ABC read that script and went like, well, we can't, they just physically couldn't do it. Right. You know, so they, they, they made it much more possible. I don't know about the nudity. That I didn't know about. Yeah, I, that's what I remember. And maybe it... Uh, they, they, they certainly skirted scandalous as much as they could in terms right. of, you know, in terms of the, the girls involved. How close did the uh, movie turn out to be compared to what you had written? Structurally very close. I mean, I've had, I've, in that sense, I, you know, there was that period when I was working through the mid-late 90s when really the only thing I had to fear was a dialogue polish. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think that... This so you didn't really have too much interference from studio execs or a director or producer saying, here, we're bringing somebody in to do bring their their take into it. No, what I did was, and I don't know how I had this this tact, but I did, is that I, I, I worked assiduously to make a, a, an ally out of the director. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I did was I started boarding the scenes as I wrote them. Ah. So I would sit there with the director and storyboard. And so what I was doing was I was locking the director into what I'd written. And that was one way of being self-protective. And the other was that I started to structure the scripts with a, go on and on about this for hours, a rising suspense line. And you really could not screw with it much. If you pulled a brick out, the whole edifice teetered. And if you pulled another one out, it came crashing down. Right. Not that that always helped. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you know, I have, I have, I have uh, film screen for help. Which I think they just rose down, wrote, they just played down at the New Beverly as, as an example of one of the worst films of 1980, I think. <laughs> and I, I understand the great hilarity. But I mean, that was a terrific script. It was The Stepfather about six months before The Stepfather. Mm. And it was unreleasable. And Michael Winter directed it. And ah. Michael Winter was as nice and as charming and as wonderful as you could get. He didn't have a clue about suspense. No, he became a very successful reviewer of restaurants. <laughs> yes, yes. But I mean, if you look at his at his at his at his credits, he had an unbroken line of, of, of directing movies for twenty five years. Yeah, never stopped. Were you a particular fan of the horror genre? You've had your most your greatest success, starting with Psycho Two and Beast Within as a writer, and then as a director with Fright Night and and Child's Play, and, and uh, all the things that have come since. Um, were you always a fan of the genre, or yeah. was it expedient? No, I was. But I wasn't like, I'm only going to do this. Right. I mean, I was always a fan of 
horror and suspense. I think I think a lot of it was psychological suspense mm-hmm. too. The uh, I very much I very much loved Hitchcock. You know, I mean, I right. thought I really thought Psych- Psycho was the greatest movie I ever saw. You know, when I was a kid, it blew me away. The uh, but no, but I didn't have an objection to it, but. At that moment in time, and the way that I came up through the 70s, I knew the older people I knew, uh, a great cinematographer and, and director called Guy Green. He cast me in uh, Walk in the Spring Rain mm-hmm. with Ingrid Bergman and Tony Quinn. And I got to try to rape Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> the uh, And I got to French kiss her. Oh. oh. But I saw, with that, I, I, I saw the old Hollywood. And through that association with those people, I saw the Academy as it was in 1980. Mm-hmm. And that was, I just took on their, their standards of, uh, of what was good. And they looked down on horror, on horror. They looked down on it as a, you know, as that it wasn't a serious yeah. film. Yeah. You know, I mean, so I had a lot of older peer group pressure who were saying, you know, don't do horror. You can't get trapped and you have to get out of it, even though that's really. That was making the money. Yes. And, yeah. and, what I, and also what I enjoyed. But that was that was the press. So I ended up making Fatal Beauty with Whoopi Goldberg. Right. And now Whoopi has just been elected to the Board of Governors of the Academy. There you go. So go, so go figure. <laughs> the, uh, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember doing publicity at Universal. In, it must have been 1981. And um, this was when Psycho 2 was coming out somewhere around. 82. The, uh, 82, yeah. And I used to see Hitchcock being driven to his office still every day, being helped very frail. His his uh, chauffeur would take him into his office very slowly, very gently. And it was something that just stuck in my head the whole time. Well, and, me too. Yeah. Because I was I was there looking for work in that lot when Hitchcock still had his... His bungalow. Right. There were a b- bunch of bungalows. Which became up. John Landis's after he left, Did after he really passed away. Know that. Yeah. No. The, uh, and yeah, that was, that was the moment in time. It, it, uh, his wife had had a stroke and she was bed, you know, at home bedridden. Yeah. I don't know how cognizant she was. And Hitchcock would come in and come in and then he'd have a lunch, which was like our dinner. Had his cook in his private um, you know, you know, cook and chauffeur. He never drove. Right. And then he would get blind drunk. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the truth. And they would drive him home and that would be his day. But the one that I heard, everybody that I, that was on Psycho 2, that was the last gasp of the group, the, the production group that had surrounded Hitchcock. Hilton Green produced that. He was, he was Hitch's first on, uh, on, on the original, original Psycho. Psycho. Yeah. Uh, he was my producer on Psycho 4. Yeah. Well, he's a terrific guy. Wonderful man. Wonderful. I'm so yeah. sorry. And I just read they lost Doc Erickson, too. Hmm. And Doc produced uh, uh, Cloak and Dagger. Right. You know? I mean, terrific. I mean, these just the people. Maybe, maybe, maybe the people that were the adults when I was doing all this, I thought were just, generally speaking, wonderful. And the people in production. So the studio system worked for you. Well, it worked. It worked great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, they don't remember now, but you know that the, the studios were like families, 
and the entire studio would vote in a block for whatever that studio's movies were for the Academy Awards. Mm. But there was a, there was a great sense of family in in Hollywood. You catch a little bit of that flavor the way Westwood used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, the and I can't remember all the names, but boy, I met, a, I met a lot of them. They were just terrific people. And everybody, Hitchcock was God, you know, but I mean, it was, it was just amazing at the time anyway, you know, so I heard all the stories about, about, about Mr. Hitchcock. Yes, it was always Mr. Hitchcock or Hitch. The yes. actors called him Hitch. Everyone else who wore a tie called him Mr. Hitchcock. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, let's talk about your move into directing. I mean, you started out bang with an iconic film. Which one? Fright Night, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I had, but I. But as a director, your your feature directing debut was Fright Night. How, how did that come about? Tell me. Well, I. Did, I, did you write a script that they wanted yes. badly and they. Yeah, and you yeah said, well, I got, I got so upset at Scream for Help. Mm-hmm. But I said, well, if, if anybody's going to screw up my movies from now on, it's going to be me. You know, why should I let somebody else do that? And therefore, I insisted on directing Fright Night. And I remember MGM tried to buy it from me. And I don't remember how much now, but it was multiples of $100,000. And I wouldn't let it go. And there were people who thought I was insane. Mm-hmm. The uh, And then I, but I was so hot as a, as a screenwriter at that moment. And once again, I got support from from a from a, a, a studio exec named John Byers. Robert Lawrence was another one, mm-hmm. and uh, Guy McElwain, who was then head of Columbia, backed me. But the reason that Guy McElwain backed me was because we had met socially previously, and I've always found myself tongue-tied. Mm-hmm. You know, when I you know I'm, I never was very good socially or. At, or at selling myself, and I would meet Guy. He was dating Portland Mason, who was James Mason's daughter. Daughter, right. And he would come over to that house, which was Buster Keaton's old mansion, which was owned by Pamela Mason, the mother. Right. Ex-wife of James. And talk show host. And talk show host. And everybody who was anybody in Hollywood of that generation, the previous generation to us, was there. That was where I'd walk in, and I would see... Gregory Peck. Hmm. I'd walk in and I would see not Johnny Carson, but the the the, the sidekick, Ed McMahon. Oh, oh, Ed McMahon. And and also the guy who produced the Johnny Carson. And it was, I mean, I, I remember when 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 Nixon was going down, the, the John whoever who did Nixon in was there. The the British critic who was such an enfant terrible that everybody talked about who who wrote so brilliantly was there when he was dying of emphysema. These are names that you'd remember, but I can't I can't remember them now either. <laughs> but I mean it was it was the it was the glitterati of the people that had started in the forties, had their big careers fifties and sixties and now were so And you, there's where I met Guy and so when and Guy didn't even I don't think he even knew my name, but when I went in to meet him after the script was recommended, he said, Oh, it's you uh-huh. Because he'd seen me there. So you were able to straddle the golden age of Hollywood in a way and move into the modern Hollywood. Um, with with Fright Night as a director, there's this incredible fondness for the genre and for, well, Roddy McDowell's, uh, Peter Vincent, is such an amalgam of 
of the horror hosts that every city had on their TV station. Tell me how that came about and, and this this affection that obviously you shared with the audience for that era and for yeah. these monsters and for these hosts. Well, I came up watching the Hammer slash AIP movies, which were, you know, heavily saturated. Uh, all the Christopher Lee stuff, you know, was... You know, we get back, wide proscenium arch, so you could see the set, mm -hmm. and uh, was very by the numbers kind of cutting. Uh, but I had a, a great fondness for those movies and Vincent Price, and uh, that was my childhood. And when I was a kid, the only place you could find a horror movie on TV was what they called the Friday Night Frights, right? Which was like an independent channel at 11 p.m. Mm -hmm. And they'd put something on, which was god-awful, but who cared and who knew? And so that was the time that I grew up, and that's what I remembered, and that's, that's me that I put into Fright Night, the fan, the, you know, the, the, the gonzo fan. And, but they had the host. They had the horror host, right. you know, right. Stanley right. Lee. And, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah, there was Zachary and Zachary, there was, you know, yeah. Elvira. And, well, of yeah. course, always Elvira. Yeah. But every city had one. Sven Gulli, all these different horror mm -hmm. hosts. Did you actually make a study of those or you basically just based it on it. your childhood? I'd lived yeah. it. Yeah. I'd grown up with it. I mean, that was, that was me. And if, if, if it would happen to, to Charlie Brewster, mm -hmm. I would have loved that to happen to me. It was the wish fulfillment of all time, you know, with, with, when I, you know, I wrote that script and I, I'd finish a scene and I'd lay on the floor and I'd, I'd kick my feet in laughter. Well, tell me, who were your favorite monsters? Well, was it the Universal uh, Classics? I think. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there were any others. There were all kinds of stuff that were coming up in the exploitation stuff. Right. You know? Well, the 50s and 60s certainly had a, a profound, uh, abundance of monsters yeah the japanese monsters the kaiju uh, any of those or was it really more homegrown no more homegrown yeah i mean you know godzilla's terrific but you know but god those movies were terrible <laughs> <laughs> okay so hammer versus universal well what hammer did was take the vampire stories and they they echoed you know the, the original novel and that created its own genre. The, then, you, then they moved into the psychological tales with Singer, mm -hmm. with, uh, with the writer who came in and did like, uh, tried to, when, when it all started to change after Psycho. Right. Uh, they had a, the writer-director came in, it was terrific. And he did about seven or eight psychological stories for, for Hammer too. Sangster, Jimmy, Jimmy Sangster. Sangster. Yeah. Jimmy yeah. Sangster. The, uh, well, there was a change also in, in the 70s in particular where they became much more permissive and much more adult in nature. In the U.S., horror movies were for kids. The Hammer movies started to bring in sex and explicit violence. They certainly did. And how did, how did you feel about that? I mean, the Universal classics were very chaste. Yes. But they were also probably, most of us, our first experiences with well, Barbara Steele and... <laughs> You know, and, and, and heaving bosoms. Yes, I bit in the pendulum. You know, at 13 or 14, I thought that was terrific. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, but that was, you know, and that passed out of style, too. That passed out of style with Psycho. That's how, that's how Hitchcock, Hitch, well, you know this, Hitchcock birthed modern horror. 
Well, modern horror became contemporary and it became about something that's real. It, it didn't take place in castles in Europe, in the fog and the mists and bats and things. Right. But it was the guy next door, the guy running the motel uh, yeah. down the street, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, how did that affect you as a writer? Do you, do you, Fright Night is very much a picture of its time, very contemporary and very modern for when it was made. And was that a specific attempt or it was just a reflection of when you wrote and directed it? Well, I think that was a specific attempt. I mean, I, I, I was writing Cloak and Dagger, right. which was ostensibly a remake of The Window. The but Window. It was, but yeah. it, was, it was an original. Yeah, it's, it really doesn't resemble The Window Not very much. 1947, it's like a 60-minute movie. It's a great little film. But you turned it into something very different. For those of the audience out there, the window is the is the juvenile version of Rear Window, but the same writer, Cornell uh, Woolrich, right? Who was a great psychological writer. The guy, I don't know how much he wrote, but he has something like forty eight films made off of his material. Yeah, it's incredible. A wonderful noir writer from the thirties and forties and fifties. Psychological yeah, noir, just yeah. really great stuff. Mm -hmm. The uh, anyway, when I was writing that, it, it wasn't strong enough to be able to to, um, you know, to, to make a movie out of. So mm. I invented the imaginary character, Jack Black. But when I was doing that, I said, if you really want to do a movie where a kid looks out his window and sees something next door, it should be a vampire next door. At which everybody said, that's the most ridiculous, stupid <laughs> idea I've ever heard. You know? So, but it wouldn't let me go. And when I finished Cloak and Dagger, I don't know what I was doing, but... I couldn't, I, I kept that, the story kept eating at me. And so I wrote, I spec Fright Night. The, uh, and that was probably one of the most enjoyable writing experiences I've ever had. It's great to write on spec where nobody's giving you notes or Isn't anything. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Well, let's get to Chucky Land. Mm -hmm. Tell me what state that was in when you got it. I, there was an existing screenplay, mm -hmm. uh, and you, once you took on the job, um, had a lot to do with where that screenplay went. Well, it was a screenplay by Don Mancini right. called Blood Buddy. Uh -huh. Ah, and it was, it was like, you know, I, 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 I love, I love, you know, thank God that he did it because who would have thought of it otherwise? However, it, 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 it was more like an episode of Twilight Zone mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it, just, it didn't work. The, uh, but the way I came up, the way you came up, you would rewrite a script, but you would still keep as much as you could. Right. And so I spent like a year trying to rewrite that, and I couldn't do it. Hmm. The because I, I really had to break with it. There were there was, what happened was the little boy went to sleep, and the doll woke up because he made the doll a blood buddy. Ergo, the title, and the little boy, the the doll would go out and kill the people the little boy didn't like, his dentist, his teacher. But there was nobody to root for or care for, and there was no villain. And but I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, well, I couldn't let this, uh, I couldn't do it. So I left it. And then another director came in. Another director came in, and he brought in the other writer who's on the list, uh, who got credit. And uh, but they didn't break it. Mm -hmm. They were still stuck with the same story. And then that director. I think it may have been Joe Rubin who directed Stepfather. Who directed? Stepfather. Yeah, I that's think Joe it was Rubin. That. Yeah. But he 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 walked away from it, mm. and I was sitting in a in a coffee shop with Dean Reisner, mm. 
Mm-hmm. Remember Dean Reisner's name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dean Reisner was a terrific rewrite man around Hollywood. Everybody used him. There isn't anything that he didn't write on. Uh, Make my day. He, he did, did right, the polish Harry, on that. Yeah. He did the polish on uh, everything. The but I was sitting talking to him, and I don't know. They they come back to me with child's play, and. I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, I knew how to write it. I saw Charles Lee Ray in my head. Mm-hmm. I needed a villain, and I needed some way to exculpate the boy. And if I had a serial murderer who somehow could could uh, put his soul inside a doll, then I had a really badass doll. Mm-hmm. And then I had a little boy and a mother trying to protect the little boy, so the audience had somebody to work with to work with. And I don't know, I, I, I spent like a year, maybe longer, the first time around trying to think of a, trying to structure a story that would work and I couldn't do it. And then all of a sudden I did. And I don't know why, how that, how that, those things happen. It's the same way you have an idea, you sit around, you woke, you carry it around for six months, a year, 10 years. And then all of a sudden one morning you wake up and you say, Eureka, mm-hmm. and you know how to solve it. But it was when I came up with Charles Lee Ray. That's what made, that's what made, the doll, doll was originally called Buddy. What got me in it in the first place was they come out with, they come out with the first chips and dolls, right. computer chips. They come out with My Buddy Doll, right. which was another reason I couldn't use the name, because it conflicted. The, uh, and, and so they would talk and they would move in. in uh, well, you knew, but the difference was you didn't know what they were going to say. Right. When we were little kids growing up, you'd laying down, they'd say, I want to go to sleep, I want to pee, whatever. Right. Only one line or two lines. Chatty Kathy and Betsy Wetsy. Yeah, <laughs> but, you, but you never knew, once they came out with my buddy, you never knew what the damn thing was going to say. Mm-hmm. And that meant that you might even think it was alive. Mm-hmm. And you also had something else. There's a, I very much like dealing with, with phobias which are universal, which are, you know, which are so... In the, in, in the mankind that everybody understands them. And I think all of us, when we were growing up, have thought with a mixture of fear and delight how, how, what it would be like if our playthings came alive. And that was one of the, the great underlying phobia in child's play. And also, there was something else driving me. I had seen Richard Matheson's Trilogy of Terror. Oh, yeah, and with the was Zuni Dan doll. Yeah. Dan Curtis directing with Karen mm-hmm. Bluff. Yeah. Right. And that, Three stories, uh, TV movie. Yeah. Right. I, amazing that they could get that on. That was like 1968. You couldn't get anything like, like that on, uh, on TV since. Yeah. Because that great. was truly hard, terrifying. Yeah. But what he did was he took a 16 mil camera. And he put it on roller skates. They didn't even have skateboards at the time, mm. I don't think. But he put it on roller skates. And he chased Karen Black around that apartment so with, the, with the doll's point of view. And it was I thought it was just dynamite. Dolly cam, yeah. Dolly cam. <laughs> Dolly cam two inches above the floor. Nice. This is before, you know, you try to put these things in historical perspective. This was before Steadicams. Mm-hmm. Steadicam sort of equates to me with, uh, with The Shining. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there was no way to to move the camera. I mean, you were you were dealing with big thirty five. When I started, they still had Mitchells, right? You know, what I mean, the Gone with the Wind cameras. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, the so I knew that if I got in trouble with the doll, 
that I could always cut to a moving point of view if I structured scenes where the doll was chasing people. Well, let's talk about that doll. Uh, Kevin Yeager designed this one. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that came to be, what your input was, what you were looking for from that good guy doll. I took, I took my buddy, and I took Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. Ah, ah, okay. And I said, the color should be like Raggedy Andy. And I need to go from, you know, benign facial expression to something that'll scare the hell out of you. And uh, the, but it has to start innocent. It has to start where the doll looks so much like a doll when the little boy starts saying, when Andy starts saying, well, the doll's talking to me. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to believe you because they look at this, you know, this sweet doll. And, but I needed it to go from there into, you know, into something out of hell. Now tell me about the the challenges of working with you. Sometimes it was a puppet. Sometimes it was someone inside a good guy suit. Um, was that particularly challenging or it was just part of production? <laughs> it was extremely challenging. It's a leading so, question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. Well, we fell behind. I mean, you could not get, I couldn't get the doll's eyes to stay in place for reverse shots. Mm. The doll's eyes would start to just very, just wonder. <laughs> and if you're trying to cut somebody talking to the doll, and the doll talking back, and the doll's half the eyes have to be on what, on who's talking. The doll couldn't move. I had seen something else. I had also seen Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Oh, yeah. Which Disney think, movie. Well, I think that was also James Bond's first movie. Sean it was Cunningham. Sean Connery. Sean yeah. Con yeah. Connery. Yeah. yeah. And they use forced perspective. Forced perspective to That's make right. the little leprechauns. That's yeah. right. Yep. So I used forced perspective. And then I also went and I got a little person who was just terrific. And uh, he's going to shoot me. He might. <laughs> Name's out of my head right now. The, but I mean, so what I used was I used, I used a real doll. I used Steadicam moving point of view. I used forced perspective. And I also used a little person in uh, in Chucky garb, which means that I had to build all the sets big. Mm -hmm. Because so like... As a little person, still not as little as a good guy. That's for sure. That's yeah. for sure. And we had like the fireplace, you know, when he busts out of the fireplace. That's that's uh, Ed Gale. Ed Gale right. was, was the person. Ed, that's Ed Gale doing it. But I built the fireplace up big enough that it made Ed Gale look like he was still Chucky's size. Right. And I also did that in the kitchen in the voodoo priest's uh, house when uh, when Chucky's on the rampage in there. And so it was it was put together with bits, snippets of film. Right. From, you know, we're using all of it together. And I did a I did a commentary, I guess, on a, on a recent release. I think it was through uh, Shout Factory. Shout Factory, yeah. And, and I went and I tried to call as it was playing on the screen. I tried to call what was what was it was it was it was it Kevin Yeager's Chucky, was it was it Ed Gale in a Chucky suit, was it a forced perspective, you know? And I couldn't I couldn't do it all the time. That's good. Yeah, that I mean, speaks well. I, yeah. I I got confused about what I'd use when. And Kevin Yeager was married to Catherine Hicks. They weren't at the time, but they were lovers, and certainly it was a blooming romance. Yes. And the the unsung heroine of of Child's Play is Catherine Hicks. She mm. did a brilliant performance she really really did and what happened i and i trimmed it i cut it down because you because it slowed down the humanity slowed down the, the pell-mell rush of the mm. 
of you know of the of, of the of the roller coaster ride. And it's a genre film, and you wanted to deliver to that audience. Well, I didn't. Oh, it but was but cut certainly, down, not but by certainly you. others did. Okay. The, so so I so I, I trimmed back what what I, what I thought was really a, an award winning performance from her, mm. and uh, and and promoted uh, of course Chucky. Right. You know. Did you have a visual style in mind? Were there any movies that inspired how you were going to shoot this? No, there was there was there was no prototype for 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 Chucky and, and Child's Play. The uh, but I had a brilliant production designer. I had John and John Jr. DeCure. Oh, DeCure, yeah. yeah. Jr. did Sleepwalkers for me. Okay. And well, Kevin Yeager did Fuzzbucket for the first thing I ever directed. Okay. Greater than so. Okay. Again, we keep passing. Well, John and John's father. Well, John's father, who did Cleopatra. Everything. Yeah. I mean, giant, giant stuff. Well, Quite you, a team. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's, that also is the secret of the success of Fright Night, was that basically Columbia... Shell Schrager essentially turned over the whole production crew of Ghostbusters to me. So that's how I got Richard Edlund. Uh-huh. And Richard Edlund brought in all those brilliant artists, you know, on that one. And Kevin, Kevin was, was, was just terrific on, uh, on Child's Play. But we were also learning as we went yeah. because nobody had ever done it. And this is a couple of beats before CGI. Right. You know, so there, you either did it in camera or you didn't do it. Right. And it was, it was, it was hellaciously difficult not to pull it off, but it just required time, you know. Let's talk a little bit uh, about your Stephen King collaborations. Mm. Um, first of all, you, you played a small part in The Stand. Yes, I did. Thank you very much yeah. for casting me. <laughs> Which, yeah, you blew up real good. Thank you. And, thank you. Uh, so then along came uh, Langoliers and Thinner. Tell me how, how those came about. Oh, boy. True story. I don't know if you know this. They offered me the stand. Oh, I did not know yes. that. Yes. And they offered me the stand when it was still a feature film. Ah, after George Romero had been on it for 15 years oh, trying Jesus. to get it going. Yeah. God. Well, they, they had a script that must have been about 217 pages. Well, what I shot was 465. <laughs> well, I mean, I said, you can't do this as a movie. Yeah. And I said, do it as a miniseries. But nobody at that moment in time wanted to do it as a miniseries. Yeah. But I was a big fan of the novella of Langoliers. Mm-hmm. Langoliers really, I don't, you know, I think it's terrific. And I think it's terrific because of the actors involved in it. But the production was ramshackle. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, we won't mention the production uh, no, company. No, of course here. not. <laughs> no, we're, we're tactful at this point in our lives. Right. The uh, it was I I had read it in his in his story short story collection I think, and it was the novella that led it off I think, and I thought it was just to the the driving sense of narrative that Stephen got in that, mm-hmm. you know, and it was and I knew he was riffing off the Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. the which I'd seen. Anyway, I just I I thought that was a terrific piece of material, and it was like the the, the biggest miniseries that ABC had that year or something, but it seems to have gotten lost, and I think that's because the CGI is so. It was in its formative years. In its formative stages, yes. CGI was. Yeah. It wasn't the fault of the guys right. that were doing it. Tom, somebody, and very very nice talented guys, but they. They, they didn't leave it. The producers didn't leave enough time to render it on and on and on. You no, know? I'm familiar with yeah, that, you know. too. Yeah. The, uh, so, you know, so I ended up doing that. And then off of that, because of the success of that, I got thinner. And, you know, and I You thought, mean the movie. 
the movie, yeah. <laughs> I got thinner and I got thinner the movie. Okay. The, and, and thinner the movie is sort of, you know, I, I, I like the movie. I think it's very good. Once again, the acting, I think it's terrific. Robert, Robert John Burke and everybody in it. But that was very unusual in terms, you know, we're, we're talking about all the things that went well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the ups and downs. We previewed thinner. And the audience would stay rooted to the spot up until the last five minutes. And then they turned on the film and hated it. Hmm. And I think it was because the titular hero, Billy, lost in the end. Hmm. And the, 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 the theme of the movie was moral jellyfish gets squished in the end. <laughs> but I think that I didn't write it right. The, uh, I think that that I made Billy into too much of a protagonist, mm. and I should have shown the, the side, the hypocrite side, so you'd understand why he, he got the bitter bit at the end, why well, he lost. Perhaps the, it was something that worked better as a book uh, for uh, an ending than... The audience know, hated him losing at the end. Yeah, I've exactly. never had a movie where, the, where the, the audience was absolutely thrilled with it into the last few minutes. Hmm. They did not want to see Billy lose. And that meant that I didn't show the, 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 the darker side of his character, the hypocrite, the someone who used, used power in the town to get out of, you know, out of his punishment, you know, and, and all of those things. So that's, that's always left me with a feeling that you have to be extremely careful about endings and it's better to go with a happy ending than with mm. a down ending you know so anyway yeah look at the mist <laughs> well i mean, yeah, but, I mean well, that <laughs> that's as around. grim as it gets yeah that's as grim yeah. as it gets and yep. it made a dollar 95 but now exactly. we're getting a tv series and i love frank so that is of that course was, i uh, think i think the mist is a great film okay well yeah. you see i thought it was a horrifying ending yeah it is it's as dark as it gets yeah. But that is... And that's not what an audience wants to see. Well, it's a deliberate choice in the case of The Mist. And I think that he had some of the same problems, which was he didn't show the bad side of the of the characters involved. It was James, I think, was the, the lead. The But you, you liked him too much and you didn't want him and his kid to, to have that as an ending because he didn't deserve it. Yeah, and it's interesting. That, King, when he saw it, said... If I'd thought of that ending, that's how I'd have ended. The well, book, yes, the but maybe you would have yeah. written it so you'd have been more ambivalent about the characters. Anyway, I felt that Billy Halleck in in, uh, in Thinner, I thought I made him too much of a good guy, and I should mm. have shown why he deserved to get screwed in the end, because the audience sure as hell did not like to see him lose <laughs> at the end. Let's uh, talk about Rock Paper Dead. Ah, yes. Okay. Tell me, tell me what it is. Tell me. Well, it, 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 it's out there, and, you know, I, I guess being set up in the festival circuit, I don't know. It was a very good script written by uh, Victor Miller and a co-writer, Carrie Fleming. And it echoes Psycho 2. Ah. It's, you know, and I didn't tell them that. <laughs> but, you know, I thought, well, maybe this is a chance to do Norman for the, you know, for the 21st century. And it had some, ter once again, terrific actors. It had a had a woman, a girl called uh, Titus, uh, Jennifer Titus. It had uh, Michael Madsen, and it had Tatum O'Neill. Wow. Yeah. So, and, 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 and Victor Miller had written the original, uh, uh, you know, uh, Friday the 13th. 
Uh-huh. So I had a good piece of material, and I had, and I had a good cast. Is it a horror film or a thriller? Well, I thought it was a psychological thriller with horror tropes, uh-huh. which is to say that the horror came in with, with the violence of, 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 of the murders. But otherwise, what made it interesting was the psychological tit and tat because it's, it's, the, it's a Psycho 2 story. You know, he gets released, and the relative of one of his victims comes back to, to drive him insane and to get her vengeance. And something we can look forward to soon. Well, it, it, was, it was interesting, you know, the... Uh, and I have hopes for it, but it's not, it's not a, it's not a roller coaster ride. It's mm-hmm. not uh, child's play. The uh, but then Fright Night isn't child's play either. Well, we've got uh, some questions from our audience that we're going to get to that came through Twitter. Uh, you can send us questions at postmortem mg. Mike asks, at one point you were attached to direct Stephen King's The Ten O'Clock People. What happened with that project? I have been trying for probably four years to get that made, and I do not know why, but I cannot. Scott asks, what is your favorite writing job you did not direct? Psycho 2. Got to be Psycho 2, right? Yeah, but I mean, I got to tell you that the script for, for Beast Within was just terrific. The, scri- the script I for the on- Huh? I remember it. I- yeah, the script for, you know, for... For uh, you know, for for the one that was on a releasable screen, for help was sensational. I don't think, except for Psycho Two, I don't know if I thought, I really thought a director ever really fulfilled what was on the page. Richard it's, Franklin did with Psycho Two, but the the rest of them, no. They it's why the so page many. was better than what was on film. That's why so many writers become directors. Yeah, self preservation. Okay, Adrian asks, can we end by saying this is the end, friend? <laughs> That's terrific. That's terrific. Yes. This is the end, friend. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Tom. Thank it's you really very good. much, Mick. Thank That's you, too. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 